Hi, this is Gay, and I'll be reading today's edition of the Cape Cod Times for Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. We'll start with the weather. Today, you can expect it to be pleasant with plenty of sunshine, high temperature 74. Tonight, it'll be clear, low temperature 59 degrees. Tomorrow, you can expect some sun with a shower in the afternoon. The high temperature will be 74 and the low 64 degrees. On Friday, it'll be breezy and humid with a shower and thunderstorm, high temperature 74, low temperature 64. And on Saturday, it'll be 73, low temperature 61. It'll be overcast and humid with thunderstorms in spots. On Sunday, it'll be cloudy with some sun and a shower in a few places, high temperature 72, low 60. The sun rose this morning at 5.58 a.m. and will set at 7.30 p.m. That's 13 hours and 31 minutes of daylight. And now for the lottery numbers. In the numbers game, the drawing for Tuesday, August 22nd, midday drawing numbers are 6619. That's 6619 for Tuesday, August 22nd, midday drawing. The evening drawing numbers are 5. Nine nine seven. That's five nine nine seven. That's the evening drawing on the numbers game for Tuesday, August twenty second, twenty twenty three. For our first story this morning, we have some late breaking news. Centerville man killed, two injured in crash that involved a Cape Cod RTA bus. By the Cape Cod Times staff. A 39-year-old Centerville man was killed in a multi-vehicle crash on Old Stage Road near Carlton Lane at about 4.50 p.m. Tuesday, according to a Barnstable police statement. Three vehicles were involved in the crash, including a Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority bus, the statement said. The victim was driving one of the vehicles involved in the crash and was not breathing when police arrived on the scene. Officers began CPR on the man, the statement said. The Centerville-Osterville-Marstons Mills Fire Department Rescue Squad arrived a short time later and continued treating the man. They brought him to Cape Cod Hospital, where he was pronounced dead, according to the Two other people injured in the crash were also brought to the hospital, Captain Thomas Goodyear of the Centerville-Osterville-Marstons Mills Fire Department said in a written statement. Two vehicles sustained extensive front-end damage, Goodyear said. One of the vehicles collided with a Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority bus before crashing head-on with the other vehicle, he said. The Barnstable Police Department crash reconstruction team is investigating the crash. Our next story is from Martha's Vineyard, a Quinnish shop restaurant to be returned to the Wampanoag by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. Seven years after the Aquinas Shop restaurant on Martha's Vineyard was sold outside the Wampanoag tribe, a Mashpee-based native land conservation group has bought the restaurant and surrounding land for $2 million with plans to return the land in perpetuity to the Aquinas Wampanoag. The Native Land Conservancy, the first native-run land conservation group east of the Mississippi River, purchased the land and plans to temporarily hold the property until the newly formed Aquina Land Initiative is able to fundraise the purchase cost. The land itself is extremely important to us, and we feel that we are not separate from the land. We are part of the land, and the land is part of us, said Winona Madison, president of the Aquina Land Initiative. Madison, the great-granddaughter of Napoleon and Nanette Madison, who founded the Aquina Shop Restaurant in 1948, said the Wampanoag Woman-Run Aquina Land Initiative is waiting on its 501c3 status. 
She said there was a lot of concern within the community about the land falling into the hands of a developer, private homeowner, or restaurant. It's very important for us to have it back under the stewardship of the tribe, Madison said, and as soon as we started this process, it felt important to reach out to the land, Native Land Conservancy to learn from them. You know, I'm humbled by their incredible generosity and their willingness to share what they've learned so far. Ramona Peters, founder and chairwoman of the Native Land Conservancy, said it's been part of its mission to help other Indigenous people wherever they are. To be able to do this in collaboration with dedicated tribal people who are ready to step up and participate in this way, it's a very big thing, Peter said. I would encourage donations be made to the Aquina Land Initiative. They're up and starting. They're going to need some help. There are plans to prioritize erosion protection on the land, including an area on the face of the Gayhead Cliffs where there are measurable effects of climate change, according to an August 18th press release. Also in motion, the press release stated, are plans for both organizations to acquire other important Wampanoag land for cultural access and stewardship on Martha's Vineyard. Peters said cultural access to tribal lands is a key element in purchasing the restaurant as generations of indigenous peoples have lost access to sacred lands. There's so much land that has been lost to indigenous people due to the lack of funds that when I say I'm gratified, I'm really speaking for generations, Peters said. And now from Bourne. Bourne Board endorses $75,000 for study for Park Movie Screen. Film lovers in the near future may have the opportunity again to go to the movies in Buzzards Bay next to the Cape Cod Canal when the summer sun sets. The Board Planning Board will unanimously sponsor a $75,000 Community Preservation Act funding request to underwrite a feasibility study with an eye toward building an outdoor movie screen in Buzzards Bay Park at the west end of Main Street. The Movies in the Park funding request is not new. The idea failed to gain traction in the past, said Planning Board Chair Dan Doucette on August 10th. The money the board will request is not for concrete design, he said. It's, can we do it? Yes, sir. An outdoor movie screen in the park would, according to planning board members, also help attract residents and summertime visitors to Main Street and the canal-side venue next to the restored Spanish-style train station. It will help draw people to the concerts on Thursday nights in the park and other events, Doucette said. Board member Char Chris Farrell agrees. Bourne's famous photographers could display their work, he said, showing that Bourne is much more than a famous canal, highway, and bridges. A movie screen would make the park more alive than just on one day a week. Canal Region Chamber of Commerce President Marie Oliva says park movies are a good idea in theory. A decision about where to put the screen is necessary, she noted in an August 11th email. Personnel would have to be available each night the movie is played, Olivia said. There would be need to promote and marketing of this project, a determination of what nights this would be available, perhaps once weekly, and what authority would manage the movie screen project. She said a feasibility study would answer some questions. Feasibility study funding would come from the Town Community Preservation Act Recreation Entertainment Account. The idea could be presented to town meeting voters in November. Community Preservation Committee Chair Barry Johnson said the screen proposal faltered a few years ago when concerns were raised about floodplain and groundwater table levels in the park. He said there were questions over electrical and mechanical aspects of the plan related to their protective housing in a it's a good idea, but there needs to be a delineation of who would be responsible for upkeep, repairs, and maintenance of support facilities for what essentially would be a giant plastic screen, Johnson said on August 12th. 
The outdoor movie planning involves 24 years after the 1920s Buzzards Bay Theater was demolished by owner Vincent McChenzie as part of an urban renewal effort to commercially revitalize Main Street. The 693-seat movie house closed as a Hoyt Cinema in 2001 and after Jeffrey Avery of Wareham tried to revive and upgrade the building but ultimately failed in his attempt. The structure was demolished in November 2009. The theater, with its old Art Deco Chevrolet sign, had a storied history in terms of visiting celebrities, notably famous actors involved in Cape Cod summer stock productions. Then-Senator John F. Kennedy and his wife Jackie, according to Town Records, also watched films in Buzzards Bay en route to Hyannisport. The building first served as an auto repair garage and was remodeled as a theater in 1937, according to Town Historical Records. A movie screen in past discussions centered on the facility being placed at the eastern side of the park, built on an old weed-strewn railroad switching yard next to rusting mobile oil storage tanks and a former Grossman's lumberyard. Today, it is open green space with the playground, pavilion, and gazebo, as well as an exercise area. The park has been used for the Canal Region Chamber of Commerce Canal Day each fall, as well as Thursday night concerts, flea and farmers markets, art shows, holiday displays, and played host to the Budweiser Clydesdale. As a reminder, you are listening to the Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023 edition of the Cape Cod Times. The Cape Cod Times Needy Fund helps elder resident with rent by Rashik Tabasa Mujib. A 93-year-old woman was struggling financially when her rent increased by $25. Living on a very limited fixed income, relying on food pantries for her basic needs, she had no other option other than to ask for help. Thanks to the Needy Fund, she was able to pay her rent. Needy Fund also connected her with a network of services that can further help improve her life. The nonprofit Cape Cod Needy Times Needy Fund has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of neighbors helping. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Islands residents so they can continue to go to work and or stay in their homes. People in need submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund, which in turn pays for goods and services, a medical bill, for example, through a voucher system. No cash is given to Needy Fund recipients. On July 2nd, the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund kicked off its summer fundraising appeal with the goal of raising $225,000 between now and August 25th. Donations, which are tax-deductible, may be made online at needyfund.org. Checks payable to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund should be mailed to Cape Cod Times Needy Fund, Post Office Box 36, Hyannis, Mass., 02601. Those needing assistance may contact the Needy Fund at 508-778-5661 or 800-422-1446. Questions can be mailed to info at needyfund.org. The Needy Fund is also on Facebook and Twitter. And from Provincetown, hear ye, hear ye, Provincetown Shouter wins American Guild of Town Crier's title by Rashik Tabasa Mujib. During the summer in Provincetown, Daniel Gomez Lada, 59, can be found in front of Town Hall at exactly noon. Ringing his bell three times, Lada shouts, hear ye, hear ye, following up with the timing of tide, weather report, and sometimes other town news. From mid-June until late November, Lada, the official province town 
crier, dresses up in a blue costume resembling a pilgrim of the 1600s, and makes his pronouncements. All that declamation has paid off. Last week, Lada was named the champion of the 2023 American Guild of Town Criers Virtual Championship. Mike Lever from Sylvania, Ohio, secured second place, while the Murraysville Historical Preservation Society in Pennsylvania won the third. The annual competition has been a public event before the pandemic, but since 2020, the competition has been virtual. Participants from all across the country have to send in a video with a monologue based on the theme, and then judges select the winners from the submission. This year's theme was Why a Town Crier, in which Lada focused on the impact a town crier has in modern times. Beyond being a mere messenger, a town crier serves to preserve the rich heritage of Provincetown as a bridge to our past and an ambassador of goodwill, he said. I consider myself an ambassador of Provincetown, and I share the legends, the stories, and the historical milestones that define our unique identity, which makes Provincetown what we are today. Lada spends a fair amount of time taking pictures with tourists. Adorning his pilgrim costume is a gold medallion, which denotes his membership in the American Guild of Town Criers. Older tourists usually bring their children and grandchildren and want to continue the tradition of taking photos with a town crier, as they did years ago, and they usually pass it along to the new generation, said Lada to the Times on Monday in a phone interview. According to Lada, Provincetown is one of the few towns in the country to have a long, continuous history of maintaining a town crier. Lada was given the position of the official town crier of Provincetown in 2020, employed by the Provincetown Chamber of Originally from Los Angeles, Lada moved to the Cape in 2006, worked as a postal carrier for the United States Postal Service in Provincetown for many years, and also worked at the town harbormaster's office in Provincetown. Now retired, Lada works as the town crier during peak season and spends winters in Southern California with his husband. And from Hyannis, inspire an army with Shakespeare or Smash Walls playing Dungeons and Dragons on Cape Cod by Amber May Rivard. How do you motivate untrained townspeople to help you fight off an army? For Dungeons and Dragons player Lindsay Rotman, the trick was standing on a chair at Vanguard Tabletop Gaming in Hyannis and reciting the most famous speech from Shakespeare's Henry V play. I read off the entirety of the soliloquy of the St. Crispin's Day speech, said Rotman. People even left the games they were playing in other rooms to come watch, she said. This is just a glimpse into how you can let your creativity take the wheel and immerse yourself in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons has been around since 1974 as the first role-playing game, and it has hung on for decades. With the new movie Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves raking in $208.3 million this year, you can say the popularity is on the rise and the game's fifth edition is taking the cake. The Times landed at the relatively new Vanguard Tabletop Gaming to watch firsthand the adults and kids' Dungeons & Dragons group on their magical conquests. With a variety of open-play games in action, it was a full... Other places on Cape that offer Dungeons & Dragons supplies and games include Darkwater Arts in Mashpee and Newbury Comics in Hyannis. There were games held last May at Bread & Roses in Hyannis. To play, first and foremost, you need a dungeon master and players. If you're in short supply, try calling your local gaming store looking online. There is a Cape Cod Dungeons & Dragons Facebook group. Once you find your group, you can commit to a campaign which can last over a week with a weekly over a year with a weekly game, or you could do a mission where the game ends in that set. It's up to you. The whole game can be whatever you and your group want it to be. 
Rotman, who is 23 and works in the hospitality business, explained that the game begins with a creative process where you first pick your own character, abilities, and backstory. In the game, Rotman's character is a sorcerer with a fiery persona who grew up on the streets with a pet rat. There's a bunch of different species and there's a bunch of different classes and whatever class you want to be in kind of depends on how you want to play your character. So if you like, you want to do magic, you might want to create like a wizard or a sorcerer. But if you want to fight with weapons, you might want to be a barbarian. She the dungeon master for the kids group, Tyler Sousa, explained all campaigns are different. They have what they call a session zero. Dungeon masters can either follow pre-written campaigns or they can make their own. But either way, this game is full of improv. In session zero, they discuss what their characters are and how they want the story to play out, kind of like the expectations for what's going to happen for the most part. And a lot of times the dungeon master will go out and look at the characters' backstories and stuff and try to like weave their important details or things like that. They'll respond to into the campaign, said Sue. The players set the tone for the game, Sousa said. For the kids group, Sousa tailors the game to what the players want to see, which he gets a feeling for during session zero. The dice are there to make it a story, to make it interesting, Sousa said. You want failure and you want successes. Sousa suggests watching people play to get a feeling for how it works. Adult group dungeon master Stephen Allen advises players to at least skim the player's handbook. The dungeon master should give the dungeon master's guide a light read and a monster manual. In a common campaign, the plot tends to settle around having an ultimate bad guy to fight after competing several levels. They call it the bad evil guy, BBEG, Sousa said. Again, the players set the tone for the game. It can range from funny to very serious. Sousa recalls a campaign he was playing where the ultimate goal was to march the townspeople out of the destroyed town for to safety. Sousa explains this game can be as easy or as complicated as you want it to be. During his first campaign in 2015, they didn't have much. Sheets of paper with pencils and one guy who vaguely knew the rules of an older D&D that he played like years ago, and we had a blast. Those are some of my favorite memories, he said. My favorite campaigns don't have a lot of combat at as the visible gears of imagination were shifting, sparks lit the players' eyes and hyannas. The connection of shared creativity and laughter filled the room. It felt therapeutic. Alan, 32, who works as a librarian and holds a bachelor's degree in psychology, held a few sessions of D&D at Family Continuity in Hyannis last year. A parent asked him if Dungeons & Dragons would be okay for their 12-year-old who was going through a hard time. There are people who do sessions of this as therapy, Alan said. It's like control over your life. You get to be somebody entirely different. You get to do something entirely out of your realm. And you get to be exactly who you want to be. You don't have to worry about, you know, preconceived notions. You don't have to worry about how the rest of the world sees Alan recalled a fond memory of just that. This little four foot ten, you know, teeny tiny blonde girl. She played a six foot nine Conan the Barbarian kind of thing that was just kind of like, oh, shopkeeper, give me this thing or I'll smash you. I remember this look of absolute glee as she's describing her barbarian just like bursting through the wall like the Kool-Aid man, he said. The adult group at Vanguard Tabletop Gaming recently finished its long campaign and members plan on taking a break until the end of September. And from the State House Nurse Service, Climate Protesters Disrupt Healy's Nantucket Fundraiser by Allison Kutznitz. 
10 climate activists from recently launched advocacy group disrupted a fundraiser for Governor Maura Healey at a private Nantucket home over the weekend, urging the governor to halt the construction of new fossil fuel projects across the state. Climate Defiance, a youth-led disruptive action organization based in Washington, D.C., targeted Healy with demands similar to those made by Extinction Rebellion, whose members have been arrested at two protests at the State House this year, as they've called on the administration and legislature to block new fossil fuel infrastructure. Members of Climate Defiance, which targets federal figures, heckled Vice President Kamala Harris as she spoke during a fundraiser on Martha's Vineyard this month, said Climate Defiance staffer Martin Giannotti, who interned for Representative Denise Garlick and the Department of Public Utilities this summer. At the Saturday fundraiser, Climate Defiance member Matt Lyon said he interrupted Healy as she stood on the patio to thank donors and asked if she would commit to stopping fossil fuel projects. Lyon, who's also an Extinction Rebellion member, said he was arrested at the State House in May during the sit-in inside the empty House chamber. We knew this was an important event for her, so we took the opportunity to bring the reality of the climate crisis and the urgency, Lyon told the news service. The idea was bringing that emergency to them, making them feel the urgency and the responsibility they have. A Healy spokesperson declined to comment, though the governor has praised the new state budget for making the largest commitment to climate in Massachusetts history. After falling short for many years, 1% of the budget is now allocated to energy and environment, Healy shared in a post this month. Lyons said Healy didn't directly answer his question and instead spoke about her lawsuit filed during her tenure as attorney general against ExxonMobil for misleading investors about climate change risks. That deflection, as Lyon described it, prompted activists to begin chanting and unfurling banners that read, End Fossil Fuels and Business as Usual is a Climate Disaster. Fundraiser attendees began screaming at the protesters and telling them to leave, Giannetti said. Lyon said Nantucket police officers arrived as climate defiance members left voluntarily and peacefully. No one was arrested, but we were really harassed. We are really fighting our future, and we don't want to die, Giannetti said of the climate crisis. And also from the State House News Service, Healy outlines projects competing for Fed funds by Chris Lazinski. The old and deficient Cape Cod bridges aren't the only major infrastructure needs for which Massachusetts officials hope to win federal funds. The Healy administration on Monday announced it submitted federal grant applications for three other projects, a massive effort to reshape the highway, rail, and pedestrian infrastructure near Interstate 90 in Alston, a North Station drawbridge replacement, and reconstruction of Route 9 in western Massachusetts. State and City of Boston officials jointly sought $200 million in mega grants for the Alston Multimodal Project, which would replace the raised highway viaduct with a series of roadway lanes, rail tracks, and pedestrian paths, all at roughly the same elevation next to the Charles River. That represents a small share of the total project costs, which state officials last year projected to be roughly $2 billion. A previous city-state attempt to secure almost $1.2 billion in grants was unsuccessful. The MBTA applied for a $672 million from MEGA and INFRA programs to replace the Draw One Bridge, which carries commuter rail trains from North Station to points north of Boston and also supports Amtrak Downeaster travel. 
MBTA General Manager Phil Eng said replacing the span is crucial to ensuring that we can safely and reliably provide train service in and out of North Station. An MBTA spokesperson said the North Station Bridge Project is expected to cost $1.2 billion. The third non-CAPE project highlighted Monday is a proposal to modernize and reconstruct Route 9 in Williamsburg, which officials described as an important east-west freight route. The administration applied for $44 million toward that project. Healy last week signed a new approach to seeking federal dollars toward replacement of the Cape Bridges, focusing first on securing money for the Sagamore Bridge after previous grant bids failed. From Sam Drysdale, the State House News Service, workers' comp researchers examine long COVID. Six percent of workers who filed workers' compensation claims for catching COVID-19 between March 2020 and September 2021 have also received care for long COVID, according to a new report. Of these workers, many of them continued receiving medical care for ongoing a year after their infections, researchers at the Cambridge-based Workers' Compensation Research Institute say, citing work that involved data from 31 states. Our main takeaways for workers' compensation policymakers and stakeholders are that long COVID continued to affect a meaningful share of workers with COVID-19 infections, and that was an important driver of claim costs, said Ramona Tanabe, president and CEO of WCRI. Symptoms of long COVID include continued fatigue, fever, heart palpitations and chest pain, shortness of breath, headache, sleeping problems, depression or anxiety, change in smell or taste, and difficulty thinking or concentrating, sometimes referred to as brain fog, according to the Centers for Disease Control and among all 50 states, Massachusetts was found to have the second fewest amount of workers who filed long COVID claims behind Missouri. About 3% of workers in the state filed claims for long COVID care. Oregon, with the most claims in the country, had about 10% of sampled workers who continued to be affected by the virus. In states with higher percentage of workers who received medical care after COVID-19, a lower percentage of those workers with medical care developed long COVID, the study says. A Senate Joe Comfor of Northampton Bill would create a special commission to study long COVID-related needs in Massachusetts. The report showed that those treated in the ICU during their initial COVID-19 infection were likely to end up seeking treatment for continued symptoms in the post-acute stage of the infection. Among workers sampled who received ICU care, 74% also received treatment for long COVID. Of the workers who were hospitalized but did not receive ICU care, 46% also had long COVID symptoms. And among those sampled who received one-day medical care and no hospitalizations, 5% sought treatments for long COVID. The cost of long COVID claims also far outgrew insurance costs to treat initial COVID infections, according to the study. At an average of 18 months of post-infection experience, these workers received more than 20 weeks of temporary disability benefits and received about $29,000 in medical care, Tanabe said. The medical costs for workers who were hospitalized or had ICU care early after the infection averaged $66,000 and $190,000 respectively. In comparison, those who were just treated for an initial COVID infection racked up $2,300 in 
Most workers with long COVID had conditions related to their lungs, with 64% of claims having to do with pulmonary health. A third of all claims had to do with heart-related symptoms, and 12% listed mental health conditions. About half of the workers with long COVID had medical bills with continued symptoms affecting multiple parts of their bodies, the report said. Workers with long COVID, on average, had five months of temporary disability benefits with an average of 18 months of experience after infection. This suggests that in many cases, workers with long COVID were not able to return to work after the acute stage of the COVID-19 infection was over, or perhaps they had subsequent absences from work after initially returning to work. Importantly, these measures suggest that long COVID may have had a persistent impact on workers' ability to work after the infection, the study says. The sample reflected some correlation between workers' age and long COVID. Only 2% of workers 15 to 24 reported long COVID symptoms, with each increasing age group showing higher numbers of people continuing to suffer from symptoms. Of the 45 to 54-year-old sampled, 9% reported receiving long COVID treatment and 12% of those over 65 did. And you are listening to the Cape Cod Times, Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023 edition. And now it's time for the obituaries. Our first obituary, Vivian Emma Cushing from Marston's Mills. Vivian Emma Cushing, 98, of Marston's Mills, died on August 20th, 2023. She was born in January 12, 1925 in Middleborough, Mass. In 1929, her family moved to Sandwich, where her father became a lobster fisherman out of Cape Cod Bay. Here, Vivian grew up and attended Sunday school at the former Federated Church and spent her entire school years at the Henry T. Wing School in Sandwich. On graduation from high school in 1942, she was awarded a small scholarship and attended the Cape Cod Secretarial School in Hyannis for one year before taking a position at the Cape and Vineyard Electric Company office in Hyannis. She also worked part-time at Pratt's Drug Store on Main Street. In, in 1947, she married Wilbur C. Cushion from Marston's Vivian joined the Marston's Mills Methodist Church and Choir. She later taught Sunday school for the next 10 years and served as superintendent for several years. She joined the Marston's Mills Go-Getters Club when her children started school. And when the Marston's Mills Church joined the Osterville Methodist Church, she went with them and sang in their choir for the next 40 years. She and her husband, Wilbert, were among those who founded the Marston's Mills Historical Society, and she served as its treasurer for many years. In the 1970s, she was the Marston's Mills representative on the Barnstable Historical Commission and later joined the Barnstable Centennial Commission. Vivian is survived by many relatives who will greatly miss her. In lieu of flowers, donations may be sent to the United Methodist Church, 57 Pond Street, Osterville, Mass., 02655, or the Marston's Mills Historical Society, Post Office Box 1375 Marston's Mills, 02648, or the Marston's Mills Library, 2160 Main Street, Marston's Mills, 02648. There will be a brief graveside service this Friday, August 25th at 10 a.m. at the Marston's Mills Cemetery on Route 149, followed by the church service at 11 at the Osterville Methodist Church at 57 Pond Street in Osterville, followed by a coalition at the church hall. Natalie S. Duffy. Natalie Stanley Duffy of Weston and Hyannis passed away on August 20th, 2020. She was the beloved wife of the late Robert L. 
For decades, Natalie hosted a Christmas Eve open house party for friends and family. Natalie and her late husband, Bob, spent 50 summers at the Yachtsman's Condominium on Lewis Bay and Hyannis and were members of the Hyannis Yacht Club for 33 years. Natalie was a devout Catholic and proud member of St. Julia's Church in Weston and a generous supporter of many The family would like to thank the staff at Maplewood in Weston, the memory care unit, for caring for Natalie and her late husband, Bob. Visiting hours in the McDonald, Rockwell, and McDonald Funeral Home at 270 Main Street on Route 20 in Watertown will be from 4 to 7 today, Wednesday, August 23, 2023, followed by a funeral mass on Thursday, tomorrow, August 24th from 2023 at 10.30 a.m. in St. Julia Church, 374 Boston Post Road, Weston. Relatives and friends are kindly invited. Internment, Linwood Cemetery, Weston. Mary Lou Coppola, Centerville. Mary Lou Coppola, 78, of Centerville, passed away on August 19, 2023, at Cape Cod Hospital. She was the loving wife of 57 years to Richard Coppola of Centerville. She was born in Adams, Mass., and she graduated from the Mass College of Liberal Arts. And upon graduation, she worked as a medical technologist for a few years before switching careers to sales manager of Holiday Hallmark Store in the Cape Cod Mall for many years. Mary Lou is survived by her husband and many other family members who will miss her. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 on Tuesday, August 29, 2023, in the Chapman Funeral and Cremations, John Lorsch Chapel, 3778 Falmouth Road in Marston's Mills. A service will follow at 6 p.m. in the funeral home. Burial will be private. Memorial in Mary Lou's memory may be made to the American Heart Association, Post Office Box 840692, Dallas, Texas, 75284. And that concludes our obituaries for today, August 23rd, 2023. In national news, Maui works to find 800 still missing. Officials face challenge of identifying fire's victims by Audre McAvoy, Claire Rush, and Jennifer Cinco Kelleher. Associated Press, Lahaina, Hawaii. Two weeks after the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century swept through the Maui community of Lahaina, authorities say more than 800 people remain unaccounted for, a staggering number that presents huge challenges for officials who are trying to determine how many of those perished and how many may have made it to safety but haven't checked in. Something similar happened after a wildfire in 2018 that killed 85 people and destroyed the town of Paradise, California. Authorities in Butte County, home to Paradise, ultimately published a list of the missing in the local newspaper, a decision that made that helped identify scores of people who had made it out alive but were listed as missing. Within a month, the list dropped from 1,300 names to only a I probably had, at any given time, 10 to 15 detectives who were assigned to nothing but trying to account for people who were unaccounted for, Butte County Sheriff Corey Honea said in a phone-in. At one point, the local editor of our newspaper said, hey, if you give me the names, I will print them. And at that point, it was like, absolutely, anything that we can do to help out. But Maui authorities have opted not to publicize their list because it's unclear whether privacy rules would prevent them from doing so, said Adam Weintraub, spokesman for the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. There are also concerns about further traumatizing families of those who are now listed as missing but may turn out to be dead as of Monday, there were 115 people confirmed dead, according to Maui police. 
All single-story residential properties in the disaster area have been searched, and teams were transitioning to searching multi-store residential and commercial properties, Maui County officials said in an update late Monday. The names of and any information related to the missing individuals will not be published or be made publicly available at this time, a Maui County spokesman said via text message. There are also widely varying accounts of the tally of the missing, Hawaii Governor Josh Green said Sunday on the CBS News show Face the Nation, that more than 1,000 remained unaccounted for. Maui Mayor Richard Bisson said in a pre-recorded video on Instagram that the number was 850. And during President Joe Biden's tour of the devastation on Monday, White House Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood-Randall put it between 500 and 8. The American Red Cross said it generates its own list, separate from law enforcement, of people who are unaccounted for through requests made to its call center and information gathered by its field team, spokesman Daniel Paris said. The organization has also entered into a data-sharing agreement with federal, state, and local government agencies to help with reunifications. So far, the American Red Cross has successfully completed roughly 2,400 requests seeking reunification or welfare updates out of the more than 3,000 it had received, Paris said. A completed request means the organization was able to locate a missing person or verify someone's status in a medical facility, for example, among other things. To find people, the organization cross-checks names with emergency shelter registration lists, calls hospitals to see if the person was admitted as a patient, and combs through social media, among other steps, Paris said. When an individual is located, the organization provides their status to the person seeking information about them with the individual's consent and closes the case in its Social outreach like this will be crucial as identifying human remains after wildfires and confirming whether those who are unaccounted for are deceased can be an arduous, lengthy process. Fire experts say it's possible some bodies were cremated in the Lahaina fire, meaning there may be no bones left to identify through DNA tests. Those are easy when destruction is modest, said Vito Baracus, president of fire safety research consulting firm Fire Science and Technology, Inc., if you go to the extreme of things, if turned to ash, you're not going to be able to identify anything. He added that damage from debris removal and excavation can also make recovery efforts difficult. Honia, the Butte County Sheriff, said it took weeks to complete the search for remains in Paradise, and his detectives worked 16-hour days to narrow the list of the missing. Today, there is only one person who still remains unaccounted for, and Honia said he has reason to believe that person was not in town the day of the we had this Excel spreadsheet with the people's names and any of the different information we had, he said. We'd then start working the cases similar to the way you work any other case to try to locate somebody. That included visiting people's last known residences, contacting telecommunications companies to see whether they had used their cell phones, and reaching out by email and social media. Scuba instructor Tim Ferguson, whose home north of Lahaina was spared, was elated to hear about a friend who managed to flee the flames with their family, including a two-week-old baby, a three-year-old toddler, and their two dogs. They lost their home, but they are safe. There are so many of those who won't have that ending. I don't know how we come back from that, Ferguson said. And from USA Today, GOP hopefuls prepare pitches. From Zach Anderson, David Jackson, Savannah Kuchar, Sudishka Kachi, Marina Potofsky, Ken Tron, and Philip Bailey. Mock debates, campaign staffers pretending to be fierce rivals, playbooks full of strategies and talking points. 
These are all tactics presidential campaigns use to get candidates ready for debate night. As the first Republican primary debate approaches on Wednesday in Milwaukee, the crowded field of GOP hopefuls will make their pitch to voters and target their rivals on a national stage. But how are these candidates preparing for the first 2024 debate? Reports from the USA Today Network reached out to a slate of Republican presidential candidates to see how they hope to compete this week. Here's a peek at their plan. Ron DeSantis, Knives Out. The Florida governor brought in Brett O'Donnell, who did debate prep for former President George W. Bush, former Arizona Senator John McCain, and Utah Senator Mitch Romney to help his debate coach. DeSantis' campaign declined to give details about DeSantis' debate prep other than he's preparing for attacks. Every candidate on and off the debate stage will have their knives out for Ron DeSantis because they know this is a two-man race, DeSantis' communications director Andrew Romeo said. A pro-DeSantis super PAC posted a proposed debate strategy online in an apparent attempt to communicate with the campaign without violating election rules. DeSantis distanced himself from the super PAC's debate advice, telling Fox News Digital over the weekend that the memo is not mine. I haven't read it. Mike Pence, willing to square off. The former vice president and aide said Pence is preparing for Wednesday's debate the way he approached one-on-one vice presidential debates in 2016 and 2020, with an emphasis on parrying attacks from opponents and raising questions about the other GOP candidates. I've had a little bit of experience with nationally televised debates, Pence said on Wednesdays this week. It's different with a group on stage. The Pence campaign decided to provide details on his specific preparations, including reports he has held knock debates in, at least one of which included a Trump stand-in. The former vice president, who has adopted a more feisty campaign style in recent weeks, told ABC that I'm just going to be me. Nikki Haley, give the true answers. The former South Carolina governor has been preparing for the debate since the start of her campaign. Debate prep for me was the 80 town halls I did in Iowa and New Hampshire, where we let everybody ask whatever question they wanted. You know, you get the hard questions. You have to give the true answers, Haley told Fox News. Haley said she plans to present her vision during the debate, focusing on conservative priorities from reducing government spending to securing the southern border. Tim Scott, it's game time. The South Carolina senator is one of the main contenders to watch Wednesday, as many political observers agree that he has a chance to break through the noise. Tim Scott will share his positive conservative message on the debate stage in Milwaukee, Scott campaign spokesman Nicole Morales told USA Today. Scott wants to break through the rest of the field with voters and donors looking for a positive alternative to the Trump-DeSantis feud. Doug Burgum, people getting to know who we are. The North Dakota governor has revealed little about his debate preparation process, instead saying he's focused on addressing real people. I think about those people when I'm on the debate stage as opposed to trying to design answers for Washington insiders, Burgum told Politico last week. I'm running for the people out there that are getting crushed under this current economy. In measuring success after the debate, Burgum has said the outcome will depend in part on how well he is able to boost his name recognition and help solve the Doug Who problem. We're in a very different spot than almost anybody else on stage because virtually everyone else has got almost 100% name recognition, and we're a long way from that. I mean, we're at the other end of that spectrum. So for us, part of it is just people getting to know who we are, Burgum told Politico. Vivek Ramaswamy, doing things a little bit differently. The Biotechnology Entrepreneurs Campaign told USA Today that Ramaswamy's plan on debate night will be to introduce himself to American people.
That will take me right to the doorstep of the debate, Ramaswamy said in an interview with Fox News last week. So that gives you a sense of maybe how things, how I'm doing things a little bit differently than other candidates. Ramaswamy's campaign told Fox News the businessman has been cramming in a lot of foreign policy briefings and spars with staff during flights, but he isn't taking part in any mock debates like some of his rivals. Asa Hutchinson, tell the truth about Trump. The former Arkansas governor plans to be a prosecutor on the debate stage and tell the truth about Trump. Whether he's there or not, he will be a focal point of the issue, Hutchinson told MSNBC before the former president announced he would not attend the debate. Hutchinson has also said his strategy is to be authentic and clear in his positions. There's going to be a lot of difference between the candidates, Hutchinson told NBC News. We're going to showcase those differences, and I think that you'll see my message will be something that captures the imagination for the future. And Chris Christie, call them out. The former New Jersey governor is keeping his debate strategy simple. I'll listen to the questions, answer them directly and honestly. And if someone up there says something that I believe is dishonest, to call them out on it. That's it. I don't have any more complicated strategy than that, Christie told CNN. Christie has long called on Trump to participate in the debate and said that if the former president doesn't show up, he's a coward. Either way, I'll be there telling the truth for 90 minutes, he said earlier this month. And you are listening to the Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023 edition of the Cape Cod Times. From the State House News Service, loan repayments fortify some in Massachusetts health care. In a move that one Massachusetts social worker described as an answered prayer, the state will repair more, repay more than $140 million in student loans for almost 3,000 health care providers who sue communities in need. An estimated 2,935 primary care and behavioral health providers will receive loan repayment awards in exchange for committing to work with eligible providers such as community health centers and acute care hospitals for four or five years. The awards, which range between $12,500 and $300,000, are the first of the mass repay program that former Governor Charlie Baker's administration launched in November, funded by federal pandemic relief money, as well as opioid lawsuit settlements. They're also just the start. Officials said Monday that another $120 million more will flow in the coming months, thanks to funding lawmakers included in the new state budget. The next round of awards will be targeted towards home and human health services providers, continuous skilled nursing providers, and Department of Mental Health employees providing clinical care or case management, according to the Massachusetts League of Community Health. How much an individual provider received this round depends on their qualifications, work setting, and hours worked, according to the Healy administration. A spokesperson said 39 people are set to receive $300,000 awards, all of whom are either full-time psychiatrists or child and adolescent psychiatrists. In Brockton, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll pitched the mass repay program as a lifeline that will help more providers overcome barriers and put down roots in areas with some of the most potent staffing shortages. She said every single applicant can receive a repayment award. She contrasted the awards from a publisher's clearinghouse moment, referencing the sweepstakes in which winners are greeted with an oversized check. It's not a random knock on the door. We're reinvesting in all of you who are helping care for neighbors, Driscoll said, flanked by state officials and community health center leaders at an event in Brockton. We're reinvesting in the individuals who are helping us heal. 
reinvesting and strengthening our communities by providing the type of health care we need on the ground every single day. I can't think of a better way to utilize public funding than to reinvest in ourselves. A majority of the recipients work in historically underserved areas, many of which are gateway cities, according to the Healy administration. Close to half of the recipients are people of color, 70% are women, and 47% are younger than 35, which Driscoll said is especially important at a time when we want to make sure our young adults, this generation, can launch. Healthcare providers across Massachusetts have been struggling with staffing shortages for years, particularly during and in the wake of COVID-19 emergency that spill over into impacts on patient care and costs. Many, many people in healthcare have crushing debt, said Health and Human Services Secretary Kate Walsh. The debt that young residents face or a social worker faces, particularly against their earning potential, is really staggering. So this loan repayment not only helps people stabilize their lives, stabilize their families, maybe they can buy a house someday, but it also keeps them working in the communities they've come to love with the patients they've come to love and respect. Awardees became emotional when discussing the impact the loan repayment would have on their careers and their personal lives. Linda Alvarez, the behavioral health clinician at the Brockton Neighborhood Health Center that hosted the event, said she will now be able to truly focus on supporting historically underserved patients. It is because of this opportunity that I find this to be more than a dream come true, Alvarez said, appearing to fight back tears. For me, this is an answered prayer that opens so many opportunities to expand my love of helping as many people in need and gives my wonderful family and I the opportunity to dream and accomplish other goals we've previously placed on hold. Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers President and CEO Michael Curry said the funding will provide a boon for community health centers, which serve more than one million patients per year across the state. As we speak, health centers in Massachusetts are dealing with an unprecedented workforce crisis at a time when pent-up demand for care and services is at an all-time peak. This is constraining access to essential preventative services, Curry said. He added, this will actually make a difference. This program will keep desperately needed providers in communities that need them most. The debt relief comes at a time when many other Americans with student loan debt are preparing to resume monthly payments. A pandemic-era pause on student loans is about to expire, and the U.S. Supreme Court in June rejected President Joe Biden's plan to wipe away about $430 billion in student loan debt. Brockton Neighborhood Health Center CEO Susan Josh whose facility employs 10 recipients of loan repayment awards, praised the program as a way to keep workers employed at community health centers, which often do not pay as much as other health care facilities. A lot of health care centers, including ours in Massachusetts, are struggling financially. We've had money to support us through COVID. At BNHC, we're estimating it was about $42 million in COVID funds came in. Now that's gone, Josh said. From USA Today, Tropical Storm Harold sweeps into Texas. John Bacon and Jennifer Santucci. Tropical Storm Harold made landfall on a barrier island off the coast of Texas on Tuesday morning, bringing much-needed moisture to the drought-stricken state, but also threatening tornadoes and flash flooding. The storm was sweeping inland by the afternoon and moving at about 21 miles per hour over southern Texas and northern Mexico, the National Hurricane Center said. Harold, dubbed potential Tropical Cyclone 9 until reaching tropical storm strength early Tuesday, could slam South Texas with up to seven inches of rain into Wednesday, said Richard Pash, a senior meteorologist at the National Hurricane Center. A couple tornadoes are possible across South Texas through the afternoon, he said. 
AccuWeather said some localized areas could see a foot of rain. The exact track of the rain in Texas will depend on the organization of the system prior to pushing inland, AccuWeather's lead hurricane forecaster Dan Kutlowski said. The storm made landfall on Padre Island earlier Tuesday and was centered about 20 miles east-southeast of Hebronville, Texas, as of 1 p.m. local time Tuesday. Harold, driving sustained winds of 45 miles per hour, was headed west-northwest. The good news is that the bulk of this rainfall will be beneficial for the drought-stricken region, weather forecaster William Churchill said. But too much rain too fast could lead to isolated, scattered instances of flash flooding. More than 12,000 power outages were recorded, concentrated on Padre Island and the south side, according to AEP. The National Weather Service in Corpus Christi issued a slew of tornado warnings in cities and counties along the coast of Gulf of Mexico and inland until early afternoon as Harold made its way west and northwest. As Tropical Storm Harold moves inland, tornadoes and flash flooding have been the main concern, the Weather Service said in a social media post. Pea-sized hail was also possible. Texas A&M Corpus Christi's campus also said via email it had extended remote work operations through the end of day Tuesday. Across Mexico, rainfall amounts of 4 to 6 inches with local amounts of 10 inches are expected across portions of northern Cojilla and northern Nuevo León Tuesday through Wednesday. Harold was a tropical rainstorm when it brought drenching downpours and gusty thunderstorms to the Bahamas late last week and parts of Florida Peninsula this weekend, AccuWeather reported. The Florida Keys were swamped by up to three inches of rain while drought-stricken areas along the west coast of the Florida Peninsula picked up a quarter of an inch to an inch. In high school football, DUI looks to make a jump in 2023 by Andre Sims, the Cape Cod Times. If there was a word to describe the difference between the 2023 Dennis Yarmouth Dolphins football team and last year's team, it would be confidence. From the top down, this year's team is one focused on establishing a new normal following last season's 3-7 and seven record. Their confidence is high, D.Y. Hedge coach Chris Marsh said. I think they know they have a chance to be good and they love football, so they're excited for the season and they're ready to go. At the heart of that is the knowledge that despite last season's wins-loss record, there's value in experience. The 2022 Dolphins team was young. They started a sophomore, Jaden Barber, at quarterback, and his favorite target, Peyton Kellett, was his classmate. The two of them, along with the rest of their large junior class, will be looking to put it all together this season. The class were eighth graders when Marsh took over the program, and he said he's looking to them this season. We've kind of been waiting for that class to mature, and now they're juniors, Marsh said. I think that they're talented, and they've got a chance to do some good things. A lot of them played last year, and this year I think that's going to help us a lot. Barber is perhaps the biggest beneficiary of this newfound confidence. He was admittedly nervous last season and says this year he has an entirely different mindset. Last year I didn't have any confidence, Barber said. This year it's a major change. But in order for an offense to thrive, the linemen will have to do their job, and Marsh believes that will be the strength of this year's team, having also benefited from last year's experience. I think really for us, having the guys up front that are now physically ready to go is going to be really helpful, Marsh said. One of those linemen, A.J. Gillespie, said his position group, which returns every starter save for one, will only benefit from last year's experience. It was a big learning opportunity for a lot of us. I know it was a big learning opportunity for me, Gillespie said, to get out there and see just what it's really about in high school football when you get to varsity. That experience is going to carry us, I'm telling 
The Dolphins have their eyes set on the playoffs this season and have genuine belief in themselves to get there. The 2023 Dolphins aren't short on confidence or experience and will look to turn both into win. Head coach Chris Marsh's last season record was three. Matchups to watch this season. There are a few games you have your eye on this season for the Dolphins and with a little revenge being motivation for both. Right out of the gate, the Dolphins get a chance to avenge their 12-6 loss to Mashpee to open last season, but they'll have to do it on the road. Another 2022 loss they're looking to avenge was last season's 39-16 loss to Falmouth. Beyond that, their Thanksgiving Day matchup with Nosset figures to be an enticing close to the season. Jaden Barber, quarterback Peyton Kellett, WRGB Jake Bolin, LBRWR Jaden Weatherby, OLDLAJ Gillespie, OLDL are key returning players. And from the Associated Press, Police Union Flyers Warning of High Crime Draw Outrage by Dave Collins. Yale University and New Haven officials blasted the labor union representing campus police officers Tuesday for handing out flyers telling new students it was unsafe to leave school grounds, walk alone, and take public transportation or be outdoors after 8 p.m. The pamphlets, distributed Sunday as incoming Yale freshmen moved into their dorms, came emblazoned with a hood skull and a purported-to-be survival guide for first-year students at the prestigious university. They portrayed Yale's home city on the Connecticut coast as a place to be avoided, especially after dark. The incidence of crime and violence in New Haven is shockingly high, and it is getting worse, it warned, offering examples of recent crimes. School and city officials called the handouts a misleading scare tactic by a union seeking a new con. They handed out unbelievably offensive flyers with misrepresentation information, scaring Yale students, and promoting a narrative of our city that is inaccurate and totally offensive, New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker said at a news conference, and to do this is childish and selfish. Officials with the union, the Yale Police Benevolent Association, said the flyer was only meant to help keep students safe and had nothing to do with contract talks. The pamphlet is a close copy of an infamous leaflet entitled Welcome to Fear City that New York City's police and firefighter unions distributed in 1975 to visitors arriving at the airport. That flyer was put out as the unions fought a plan by New York City's mayor to lay off thousands of police officers and other government workers to avoid bank. The Yale Police Benevolent Association's version had the same drawing of the Grim Reaper, the same basic safety advice, and some sentences copied almost verbatim. It's inappropriate and it's fear-mongering, Yale Police Chief Anthony Campbell said at the news conference. We do not support this, and to be quite frankly, I'm really disgusted that they have chosen to take this path. The chief said when he asked Union President Mike Hall about the flyers, Hall told him they were distributed after the union received a contract proposal. It did. We wanted to apprise incoming first-year students to be careful while embarking on their academic journal at Yale, Hall told the Associated Press in a phone interview. We consider it a safety brochure. Crime rates in New Haven have historically been higher than the U.S. average, with stark contrasts between its poorer and richer neighborhoods. But Elliker, the mayor, said the flyer gave a misleading portrait of crime in the city of nearly 139,000. He said over the past three years, violent crime has dropped 29 percent, property crime is down nearly 8 percent, and other crimes have decreased 19 percent. 
The union's flyer used statistics from just a short period to make the case that crime is rising, noting that the city had reported 14 killings through July 23rd, compared with seven during the same seven-month period last year. It also noted that burglaries and vehicle thefts rose during that same period. The area around Yale has much lower crime rates. In the downtown police district, which includes part of Yale's sprawling campus, there have been no murders this year and there were none last year during the same time period, police data show. There were upticks in robberies and burglaries, but they have totaled less than 50 incidents this year. And that brings us to the end of our reading today for the Cape Cod Times, Wednesday, August 23, 2023 edition. Thank you for listening and have a great day.